For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They shall turn away from the truth and go after fables. Second Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4. The Holy Spirit makes it clear that as time goes by, some are going to give up on the faith and chase after demonic illusions put forth by professional liars. These liars have lied so well for so long that they've lost their capacity for truth. 1 Timothy 4.1 The Message An appalling thing, an outrageous thing, has appeared in the land. Prophets prophesy lies, and priests go hand in hand with them, and the people love to have it that way. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 30 through 31. They bend their tongues like a bow to shoot out arrows of lies. They are valiant in shooting those arrows, but none are valiant for the truth. Jeremiah 9 verse 3. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. There are two basic aspects of the word deception in the English language. One is that a deception is a lie itself. The other is the fruit of that lie, which becomes a web of deceit. Uh, when we speak of deception, then we speak not only of the original lie, but then we speak of uh, the ongoing uh, fruit of that lie as a deception. There are two basic participants in a deception, the deceiver and the deceived. We're either weaving a deception or we are being caught in the web of the deceiver. We think of a liar as practicing evil while we tend to excuse the one lied to as a victim. He deceived me completely, we say, which means it wasn't my fault. I was not given true information. In a certain set of circumstances, this claim of innocent victimhood is true. We can all think of examples. It is right for us to become enraged when we hear about some crooked shyster stealing the life savings of a trusting elderly person through some crooked investment scheme. We, will, we want severe penalties levied against the liar, and we like this definition of deception because it makes things simple. It's black and white. The liar is evil, and the victim is innocent, and everything's easy to understand and simple. But there's another aspect of deception that we don't like to consider. That is to accept the original lie as if it were truth, even while we have clear evidence that the lie is a lie. Then the formula would no longer be so simple as bad perpetrator versus good victim. It would be more like liar, victim. Victim embraces lie, victim becomes liar. <laughs> Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. What if we learned that the victim that I just mentioned a few moments ago, the elderly pensioner, had been warned and given irrefutable evidence that his trust in the shyster would be faulty and that to cooperate with the liar would almost certainly be guaranteed ruin? That would not lessen our righteous anger against the liar, but it more than likely would decrease our compassion for the victim. We would no longer look only at the crime committed, but we would have to try to figure out why would anybody be so foolish? How could anybody be so, so willfully self-destructive? It would no longer be a simple matter of perpetrator versus victim. It would be more complicated than that, and we would have to address not only the liar, but the lies already working in the mind of the so-called victim which would have made that victim ultimately as guilty of the deception as the deceiver himself. There are some very human reasons why we might become seduced like this. We need to be aware of those human reasons, for they are not valid excuses for yielding to lies.
They're not excuses, but they are reasons why we're vulnerable to sitting back and allowing a lie to, to take center stage without challenging it. And I want us to examine today where we may be in this and whether or not we are yielding passively to lies. Now, people who love this present world want peace and safety. That's a fact. It's, there's not, it's not a statement of accusation. It's just a fact. When you love people and you love your home and you love life, you want to protect it. A desperate murderer on the run who takes a hostage is in a temporary position of strength while holding a gun on the kidnapped person. His seeming strength lies in the fact that he does not care about the safety or welfare of his victim, but his pursuers do care. Their love for the victim they seek to rescue and his hate for the victim he cares nothing for create a dynamic which gives evil a momentary advantage. So one of the reasons good people can become controlled by evil is that we do not want to believe that evil is evil. Or we don't want to believe it's as evil as it is. Surely, we say, they cannot really intend to, then you name it. They, they can't possibly really be carrying Jews off to death camps. Or they can't possibly have clan meetings where black people are being murdered. Or the, the neighbor can't possibly be a child molester. The mayor can't possibly be an embezzler. Uh, on and on the list goes. We, we live in a, in a prolonged hope that evil is not really evil. But then when it manifests itself, like in the kidnap scenario, we're forced into action. But then we don't know what action we're going to take that might bring about the thing we fear most. So even when we're forced into action, we're, we're careful. We don't know what to do, so we do nothing. And then when we're forced to do something, even then, if that which we love is in danger, what we do may be uh, tentative, weak, or the wrong thing. Fear of all that can paralyze us. The only way out of that fear is to live in a transcendent reality and vision of, of heaven that causes us to realize that in certain situations there are things greater than earthly life. Now that may sound uh, idealistic to the point of unreality, but for those of us who live in the reality of the Holy Spirit and in the presence of the Lord and who are anticipating heaven, and his return, and who know that there is a resurrection, and that there is no finality in death, that death has lost its sting, then in such cases we have a power to call on and draw on in the face of evil that others don't have. That's a whole subject to itself we, we can't follow here in detail. But it is the only answer to why we would find uh strength beyond our strength in the face of a scenario where evil seems to be in control and we're in danger. There was a recent newspaper editorial that asked why the Western powers thought they had the right to tell Iran that they could not have nuclear bombs when Israel had them. Now, we tend to say there's no such thing as a foolish question, but this one fully contradicts that idea. To have to answer such an inane, prattling question lends dignity to it that it doesn't deserve. But we're living in an era now demanding uh, that we have to answer this kind of mindless, reasonless pseudo-philanthropy that believes, quote, everyone should be treated equally. Now, we don't want to believe that evil is as evil as it can be. That's, that's human nature, but that, that, that attitude has been taken to such an extreme by uh, certain, uh, certain people in, in our world that you end up with silly questions like uh, the one I just quoted. In their mind, all thugs should have guns if reasonable people have them, or better yet, take them from the reasonable people and fantasize that the thugs will never try to get them. 
they think all six-year-old boy scouts with a record of having been decorated for life-saving bravery, as in a recently publicized case here in America tells, uh, they think that the six-year-old boy should be treated equally as the knife-wielding thug who brings a weapon to school for bad purposes. So the six-year-old boy is expelled along with his little eating spoon for 45 days. It's strange how, in the name of protecting people from evil, you become evil yourself. Yeah, this child was expelled for 45 days for bringing his little Boy Scout spoon to school as a weapon. No tolerance, no mercy in this system of insane Mad Hatters sitting at the Mad Hatters tea party and calling it education. They also teach boys that if they're attacked in school and are struck, and if they strike back in self-defense, they are equally guilty as the assailant because both struck. Everything's equal, see? In this way, the fools make a mockery of justice while simultaneously destroying developing manhood in the process. This is equality to these moral pygmies. So to them, it is a matter of equality that even though Israel has never stated its desire to wipe Iran off the face of the earth, and Israel does not believe its coming Messiah must be summoned by initiating the genocide of its non-Jewish neighbors, while Iran does both. It isn't fair for Israel to have anything its bloodthirsty neighbors don't have. Keep in mind that it's not just Israelis that the Iranian government wants to kill, the fascist Muslim world believes killing any innocent people anywhere is a good thing. Iran's Ayatollah has stated that the death of 10 to 12 million of his own people in a nuclear exchange with Israel would be worth the sacrifice if it reached its goal of destroying Israel. So killing their own people is to them a good thing. This is way beyond uh, kidnapping and holding a hostage. The thugs of the world do not love anything or anyone but themselves. The rest of us who do love our families and our friends naturally have a tendency to want to keep peace, if at all possible, in order to maintain safety for those we love. But it is this very desire to protect what we love that can make us vulnerable to being taken hostage on a grand level. Our human love can seduce us into thinking appeasement will help us hold off possible danger. But the facts of history and the nature of evil are against us. Evil is aggressive in its hate, while human love tends toward a live-and-let-live attitude. In ordinary times, this would not be such a bad posture to take, live-and-let-live. It's reasonable. But in manifestly evil times, it is an insane and unforgiving error. This is why Irish poet William Butler Yeats wrote, quote, The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Now, the scriptures are never naive about evil or the necessity to strongly withstand it. The biblical model of a righteous people is diametrically opposed uh, to Yeats' description, or not so much opposed to it, but just uh, juxtaposed against it. The scripture says, quote, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing them, but the righteous are as bold as a lion, Proverbs 28, verse 1. These two statements don't contradict each other. They're, they're both accurate descriptions of two different possible dynamics. If the best lack all conviction, then the evil will become full of passionate intensity, for evil grows when it's not confronted by the good. On the other hand, if the righteous are as bold as a lion, then the wicked will run when no one's even chasing them. It's the very issue we must seek to understand in our time together today. Are we lacking in conviction so that evil is increasing in its passion around us? Notice that Yeats does not say that the good lack all affection or sentiment or warm feelings about their family or friends or culture. He does not describe them as lacking in religious beliefs. He says they lack all conviction. A conviction is that upon which we act, not just what we feel about. They do not act because they do not respond to deep inner conviction rooted in transcendent reality. 
Conviction has to do with a belief so strong that you would rather die than deny it. Much of Christian faith in the West is not a conviction, but a preference. We prefer to be a church member. We may experience emotional feelings, have deep, meaningful desires, and even high spiritual, inspiring religious movements of our souls, and yet never move into action by what the Scripture calls the love of the truth. Can we become as bold as lions? We have to in the generation we now live. We will continue to become more shriveled in spirit by embracing a passive live-and-let-live mentality in the name of being Christian and keeping the peace, or we will stand in a place we've never stood before with a level of conviction that causes us to act in the face of evil in ways that can overcome it. Now, please keep in mind that violence is never a part of our exhortation to action. But strong resolve rooted in obedient faith is... An action taken to defend the good and resist the evil even at our own risk is. It's important to notice what Paul says to Timothy immediately after his statement about the coming time when people will no longer want to hear the truth that I quoted in the opening today. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3-4. through 4, The very next words he says after calling Timothy to recognize that the day is coming when many will no longer want truth He says in verse 5, So be on watch, be willing to endure afflictions. For those who stand in conviction will have to be willing to do just that. In our last two messages along this line, we've already examined how Christ commands us to resist evil in nonviolent but confrontational ways. If this level of conviction is in us, then it will manifest itself whether there is resistance to it or not. It will just be in us, and then rise to the surface at the first sign of need. Such power is constantly present and ready for action because it is the fruit of a deep abiding faith and love for Jesus. But if we're living only in our preferences, in cultural Christianity, going through the motions, even going through the motions with a good heart, then no such power will arise in us even when it's needed On the other hand, the wicked are filled with an unrelenting resolve, Yeats wrote in his poem. The the wicked are full of passionate intensity. Well, are they? Yeah, they seem to be. They're actively committed to a a definite goal. That goal is in some form or other the overthrow of every good thing and the enthronement of every evil one. They do not have to be shaken awake. They are awake. They don't have to be talked into self-sacrifice. They daily lay down their lives in some form. They're patient. They're willing to keep at it no matter how many setbacks they experience, knowing that any incremental gain is a step closer to total victory of their point of view. Their hatred keeps them single-minded and focused. Only a spirit-filled, envisioned, godly people, dead to the world and alive to God, can stand against this kind of push of the darkness, we have to become bold as lions. I humbly but sincerely want this message to be disturbing. I want it to interrupt our sense of security and invade our enclaves. I'm hoping to awaken us to a Holy Spirit-controlled self-examination to see if we are in any way deceiving ourselves into thinking that what has been will be again, what is happening in our world has been before, and that all we have to do is bide our time, keep our mouths shut, and wait for the new dawn to come. I believe such false hope is delusional, dangerous, and ultimately self-destructive. It may not damn our souls to believe such falsehood, but it will certainly aid the enemies of all that is precious and good to gain far more ground than they should ever have been allowed to gain by a free and informed people. Now, the fact that we love our families and love our friends, and therefore that love gives an advantage to evil, seems hopeless. Except that I want you to understand the, the, motiv- the motivating force behind this message today is that it is not hopeless. Things are not set in cement. 
things can be transformed for the good. And only passivity is dangerous, ultimately, for us. Not the enemies, not the lies, but passivity. That's what's dangerous. As one teacher I used to know said, passivity is the poison the enemy pumps into your bloodstream before he tears your heart out. It's difficult for historians to understand how it was possible for the men of the 18th century in France to be so blind to the impending explosion which finally became the French Revolution. Or it's also hard for us to picture the long waiting lines of Berliners heading into German theaters seeking again to be entertained and propagandized while the very moment the Allied bombs were falling near them. Yet, we are listening to my voice right now and living in a society just as insane. As Professor Alan Bloom of Harvard said, quote, It may be that a civilization's most self-destructive behavior seems most normal to itself. Why would this be so? Well, it opens us up to the next reason why we are not acting in a redemptive way against evil. Sociologist Emile Durkheim spoke of, quote, defining deviancy down. He found that when a society reaches its limit of how much evil it can tolerate, it will begin to form coping mechanisms by simply redefining evil as no longer being evil. See, if we don't stand against evil, then this is what we do. We follow Durkheim's path here. Durkheim said, there's a limit to the amount of deviant behavior any community can afford to recognize. With each new abomination, we lament for a brief moment, then become accustomed to it. Once a culture reaches this state of passive resignation, the evil uh, powers of darkness go to the next step. The next step, Charles Krauthammer calls, quote, defining deviancy up rather than down. Krauthammer says, quote, it's not enough for the deviant to be normalized. The normal must then be found to be deviant. At this point, it's not enough to accept abortion as a means of birth control. We must punish responsible parenting. It's not enough to affirm sexual deviations and rightly refute mistreatment of those who embrace perverse lifestyles. No, we must disdain heterosexual marriage. By this point, the truth is treated as lies, and lies are upheld as truth. Reason dies, insanity sits enthroned, freedom becomes license, tyranny must eventually impose order on such a society. Freedom must be replaced by government control. At the writing of this uh, statement, the USA stands on the threshold of being financially upheld by less than half of the adult population. An entire one-half of us do not pay any income taxes and are therefore recipients of so-called government aid funded by the half that does work and pay taxes. In the most prosperous economy in the history of the world, this is not because there's a lack of opportunity. It's because of the mindset that we've been unpacking. Sixty years of social engineering manipulation of the poor by socialist elite government system has destroyed the black family, ghettoed the inner city, made out of wedlock childbirth more profitable than legitimacy, castrated the black husband and father, dumbed down education while exalting the lowest human behaviors in the name of freedom of expression, and made public mention of God and his law to be seen as a grave danger to the democratic process. I'm working right now with a, a young single mother trying to help her. And in the process of trying to help her, I've, I've had to encounter repeatedly in her a fear that if she betters herself, she'll lose government-subsidized uh, help. So uh, her, her, her desire to have a, a better job and, and, and have a better income and have a better position of freedom and provision for our children is constantly inhibited 
by the fear that if she does do those things, which she is capable of doing, uh, her government aid will be cut off. Now, do we need for me to state the obvious that an undisciplined hedonistic population will not be able to sustain a healthy economy and therefore will be unable to sustain a sane civilization? With a decrease in integrity and self-control, productivity demands economies shrink while demanding appetites grow. Eventually, such a misuse of freedom and property brings its own inevitable punishment. Radical individualism prepares the way for its opposite, collective enslavement and collapse. In such a scenario, the government class becomes dictatorial by necessity for the citizens who have ceased to be self-controlled and industrious still demand instant gratification of all their hedonistic desires at others' expense. Violent anarchy will always result. This is what Paul warned us of in 2 Timothy chapter 3, which we have cited too many times to number. A nation with still enough sanity to respond to warnings will at least consider and investigate its vulnerability. The culture that is nearly beyond hope is that which not only refuses to listen, but even ridicules the warnings. Disturbing as all this is, so far we have been speaking of cultures, societies, and nations. Now, broad concepts are easily kept abstract and impersonal. We can take comfort in discussing the problems of, quote, the nation or society. But nations and societies and communities are made up of people, namely you and me. On the day of judgment, our Lord will not address us in general terms as a group. He will examine me. Look at your life and ask yourself if you have in any form defined deviancy down in order to ward off the pain of its presence. Then ask God to purge false comfort out of your life at whatever cost, for the cost of allowing it is too high already. Now another reason why we tend to allow passivity to take control of us is a false view of the relationship between the political and the spiritual. I don't know too many of us who would tolerate any religious leader trying to impose any specific religious view on society uh, as a mandate. Not far from where I'm sitting, uh, there's going to be a Bible burning on Halloween night. Some misguided King James-only zealot is calling for all the faithful to come and burn any translation of Scripture that is not King James. It's weird, obnoxious, and boring. I'd rather be at a local bar than to have to endure such stuff as that. At least in the bar, I might engage a reasonable conversation with some partially enlightened drunk. Nobody in my acquaintance wants to be a participant in stuff like that, much less do they would, uh, want a, a theocracy. But to hear the rhetoric on television, you'd think that every opportunity that is given, religious people are seeking to do just that. So this is how it works. For instance, if you don't want your children to be taught the homosexual agenda, you are an ignoramus bigot and a, quote, homophobe. That's not even a word, homophobe, anyway. If you want to teach little children about various sexual deviations, though, you are loving and enlightened and stable. See, this is the product of defining deviancy up. In defining deviancy up, the in incremental takeover of society by the left has not only gained a place at the table, but now it owns the table and has ordered all at the table if they want to keep their place at the table to keep their mouth shut. A new report came out yesterday uh, that many school systems uh, are keeping books out of the library that might inform youth of the possibility of healing sexual deviations. They are systematically purging their libraries of anything that contradicts the uh, homosexual agenda. I'm stating the obvious, I know. Sadly, we do all know these facts. What we may not be willing to be aware of is that we have incrementally become subservient to this entire criminal activity. 
I have at times received communications from various well-meaning people who seek to warn me to be careful that in my writing I do not, quote, cross the line which separates church from state. They might consider me doing so here at this moment. Now, this is how that goes. Church is where we can talk about Jesus, morals, truth, and the law of God. Everywhere else in the universe is the domain of the state. That, therefore, means that the only place where we are allowed to speak of God or his kingdom is inside the Judeo-Christian ghetto called church. It's perceived to be magnanimous of the state that they allow us that. Now, what I'm, what I'm addressing here is that the whole concept of the state allowing us that shows how far we've slid, how far we've fallen. Allow us to worship the living God. We get permission from the state. And how wonderful it should be, that how happy we should be, how grateful we should be, that they allow us that. It's like people who talk about the government allowing them some of their money back off taxes. They're not allowing it. It's your money. I better not get off on that subject. Anyway. Don't cross the line between separation of church and state. Well, subtly, maybe not so subtly, many Christians have swallowed the false idea that in order to be godly, we must acquiesce to the boundary lines drawn by the state. We may unconsciously, of course, act as if God himself is under their mandate. It seems not to occur to such people that think that way that God... <laughs> is the consuming fire that created the universe and who raises up and destroys nations at his own will. And it might be a shock to our nervous systems to state out loud the fact that God is not only concerned with Israel and the church, but that he intends to fully judge all nations and that this present government of the United States, as well as our entire nation, sits fully under the storm cloud of divine judgment which hangs over us like a sword of Damocles, and that with all our best efforts politically, we are still utterly dependent on God's mercy if we are to escape impending destruction. It might be a good purgative to read every morning and evening out loud to yourself the following passages. Jeremiah 18, verses 7 through 11 says, at what instance I shall speak concerning a nation and a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it? If that nation does evil in my sight, that it refuses to obey my voice, then I will repent of the good which I intended to bless them. Now, therefore, go and speak to the people of the United States or of Great Britain or name wherever you live. And say to the inhabitants of Washington or London, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device of chastisement against you. Return now, every one. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 16 and 17, Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as the small dust of a balance. All nations before him are as nothing. They are less than nothing and vanity. Daniel 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, and he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can stand against his hand or say to him, What are you doing? Those are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. Wise politician. Psalm 47, verse 2. The Lord Most High is terrible. He is the great king over all the earth. Those are just a few of many, many verses. Maybe it would be good to do your own Bible study concerning the sovereign, terrifying wildness of God over the nations. I could easily get carried away here and forget everything else I need to say and just get on the floor and worship him. This is where your strength comes from in the face of the wickedness of the nations. 
the Western nations, the demonic nations, the Islamic nations, the rebellious nations. As Nehemiah said in chapter 4, verse 14, do not be afraid of them. It's the Lord who is great and terrible that you are to remember. Learn to sing the song of Moses found in Revelation 15, verse 4. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy, and all nations shall come and worship before thee. Lord willing, we'll return to this great theme in our next time together. In the cleverly devised system of satanic deception we now call our current culture, it is okay to speak of the Antichrist as long as you are in the defined confines of your church system. But if you seek to define the real Antichrist, which is really operating in the real world outside the church, where such descriptions really count and make real changes in real lives, if you take action against the activities that are manifestly Antichrist, then you're breaking the rules. Don't speak real things to real people in the real world. Keep inside your ghetto. The obvious fact is that it is impossible to refrain from speaking to the world system in the name of God if we are God's people. Politics means that which defines policy. Policy is how we live and how we treat others. Law is the rule of politics. God is the author of law. Never mind that the point is considered to be arguable. Let's forget that. Let those who do not know better argue away. But we will resist abortion because it's murder. God says so. We will resist homosexuality as a viable alternative to heterosexual marriage because God says so. We will also love the abortionist and the sexual deviant because God says so. And because we have been recipients of mercy we give mercy. It's not arrogant to stand against evil in the way I'm describing. It's arrogant to disobey God and think that he must stay inside the ghetto also. That's the arrogance. Yes, there's danger when we start thinking that we speak for God and everybody else is wrong. I'm certainly aware of that danger. But if I try to balance what I'm saying to you now by spending time giving warnings that we not be arrogant, when our great problem is not arrogance right now, but a tendency to sit over in a corner and keep our mouth shut and obey the rules set by the state, which in my opinion are set by the powers of darkness that control the state, then what's the use? We might as well go on and acquiesce to evil and let evil just run roughshod over us. And we're not going to do that if we're breathing. So, the sword we wield is not a weapon that brings blood. The sword is the sword of truth that's in our mouth. And that weapon of truth is more dangerous than a fleshly weapon. That's why there are more pressures against it than there are against uh, the removal even of guns. Though there is, of course, a move to take guns away from the citizens, in which case only outlaws will have them, it is far more important to the enemy to silence our voices than it is to take our guns away. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart and show you if you have in any way allowed yourself to lose sight of the terrifying reality of God's sovereignty over the nations, over all peoples, over the affairs of men. And say with Thomas Jefferson, Quote, when I consider the current affairs of men, I tremble when I remember that God is just. Learn again to tremble, not at current affairs of men, but at the holiness of God. When you stand strongly in the revelation of God's sovereignty over the earth and over the affairs of men, then you no longer think in terms of political versus religious. You simply think in terms of right and wrong, truth and lies. When Jesus, for instance, says of Herod, go tell that fox, Herod, and then he finishes his message to Herod, that term, go tell that fox, doesn't mean that he thought Herod was foxy, that Herod was sly, or that Herod was... Uh, a good politician. The vernacular of that day, the term of the use of the word fox, refers to him as a skunk, 
Uh, it was a very derisive term. And Jesus says when he's warned about Herod, go tell that skunk that I'm finishing my work, and then God will finish him. Basically, is the idea of it. Uh, you don't have Jesus standing over under a tree with this little meek and mild expression on his face, saying we shouldn't say things that are unkind. We must be nice. I've addressed that already in previous times together. But uh, let me just try to give you an example. What do you think about communism? When you hear the term communism, do you think of uh, spiritual forces of principalities and powers that have manipulated the minds of men and created an ideology that has destroyed millions and is continuing to seek more destructive positions? Or do you think of an anomaly, uh, a faded concept that came and went and uh, only sat on the stage of history for 70 or so years and died in 1989 when the wall came down and now everything's okay and we can all get along and the world is progressing toward unity and isn't it wonderful? If we think of communism as political ideology, we will allow ourselves to sink into the shadowy passive place where we don't offer opinions on politics. We just mind our own business and let people think what they want to think. If we reject the false dichotomy and we see with eyes of the Spirit, we will know that communism is not some uh, anomaly, but it was the Spirit of Antichrist and is the Spirit of Antichrist which John commands us to withstand. Now, read First John chapter 2 with this in mind. When you have some time, read First John chapter 2. Karl Marx claimed Christ as a young boy and on into his young adulthood. Then he went through a strange metamorphosis reflected in his own writings. He seems to be channeling an evil spirit which speaks through Marx's mouth. When he says, quote, I have power within my useful arms to clench and crush mankind with tempestuous force. While for us both the abyss yawns in darkness, you sink down and I shall follow laughing, whispering in your ears, descend, come with me, friend. Then in another poem, he describes the ceremony which opened him up to the possession by the evil spirit just quoted. The hellish vapors rise and fill the brain till I go mad and my heart is utterly changed. See this sword? The prince of darkness gave it to me. Does that sound like a purely political ideology only concerned with economics? Why do you think Marx rejoiced when he heard that Charles Darwin had written a book that overthrew, quote, God as creator? Does that help the poor? Does that lift up the downtrodden? Does that overthrow the oppressive governments of the world? No, it just overthrows God. See this sword? The Prince of Darkness gave it to me. Now, I want to change gears just a bit and talk about another reason why we may be passive, why we may be allowing evil to seduce us into deceptive inactivity. False teaching, false prophecy, and false living. How could a young Christian become a Karl Marx? Evidently, he was seduced into some aberrant, Activity that led him right into the hands of Satanists. In the opening verses that I quoted in this time together, Paul warns us about this very thing. He describes for us in verses uh, from Timothy, In the last days some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and lies taught by demons. They will no longer care for sound doctrine, but will follow after fables taught by deceived deceivers who will wax worse and worse. This is now reaching a level I never dreamed I would see in my lifetime. 
There's a level of deception sweeping through the West never before experienced, although it's always been there to some degree. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. But before now, it was inhibited by the presence of godly common sense, sound doctrine, and a commitment to God-ordained institutions of family, home, and church. But now a lid of sheer goofiness has taken many into its lair, and there is a parallel deception operating simultaneously in both political and the religious realm. Revelation 17 describes this relationship between the political and the spiritual as the scarlet-clad woman who symbolizes the false religious system, riding the back of the beast, the false political system. Let me try to describe this dual demonic dance going on between the scarlet woman and the antichrist beast. I just came this afternoon from a meeting with leaders who have been face-to-face over the past few weeks with a level of spiritual counterfeit operations that are difficult to describe without it stretching your ability to trust me and believe what I'm saying. These leaders I met with are trusted, respected people. They're elders with a proven ministry of over 35 years. I have every reason to trust their testimony. I have no reason to to doubt them. They've been helping to watch over a Christian conference center that has a solid reputation. The owners of that center are fine, true, trusted elders with a proven ministry also. Now, the leaders of this conference center, in good faith, allowed a a group to come host a uh, conference there recently. Nationally known leaders, if I named them, many of you would recognize some of their names. They met there uh, with 50 attendees, and the purpose of the conference, of course, you know, the leaders thought, like anybody would, that, well, they're Christians, um, we have no reason to doubt their validity, so they let them come. But the purpose of the conference was to teach people how to go to heaven, taken there by the leaders who come and go at will and travel back and forth. Oh, that's not all. They were also instructed in how to talk to their angels. Uh, So what you really have here are people who are being taught how to uh, astrally project and channel evil spirits. This would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. Some complained at the end of the week that they had not ever seen an angel yet all week long. One lady complained that she was departing uh, having not had the angelic encounters she'd hoped for. And when my one of, one of my friends asked her, she said, well, did you encounter Jesus? She said, shrugging her shoulders, well, yeah. The obvious main event for this lady, as well as for most of the group, were angels. Understand if you have a picture in your mind of some Saturday Night Live skit with a cast of nitwits floating around like drunken fairies. But that's the saddest part. Many were seemingly stable, otherwise normal-acting adults from professional backgrounds that require a high degree of discipline and clear-headedness, but for some reason they have bought into a deception spookier and more demonic than the weirdness of the 1960s and 70s when the gurus and shamans of India and Africa were making profits off gullible, spiritually starved Westerners. Now, before you move from being mildly amused to feeling sorry for these people, remember this. Deception on this level only comes when those who are deceived have willfully chosen to reject some revealed truth of God that they do not wish to obey. Deception is not accidental. It is the result of willful rebellion that precedes it. If you want more study on this subject, go to our tape library or our CD library and look for the titles How to Discern Deception and another called The Battle for Truth. It's interesting to note just a few of many parallels that are happening between the spiritual world and the deceptions of the political world. They're they're tied at the tail. 
In both cases, leaders are seen as charismatic Messiah figures who have arrived and will lead the poor, dumb peons into a high place they could never attain without bowing to the leaders. In both cases, prophecies, or in the political version, promises, never come to pass. In both cases, if an outsider, quote-unquote, dares to point out the falsehoods, they are attacked, their character is slandered, and any reasonable dialogue that might eventuate in some degree of clarity is not just discouraged, but shut down with a vengeance. Finally, most disturbing of all, in both the political and the pseudo-spiritual there is a Kool-Aid drinking, twinkly-eyed wonderlust that simply refuses to hear anything that contradicts the party line. Many who would find the charismatic conference meeting I've just described as totally inane and ridiculous see no contradiction at all between their Christian faith and their support of Obama or the Democrats. That he is the most virulent pro-abortionist in modern history doesn't matter to them that he's manifestly Marxist in his associations and therefore in his views is easily refuted by them, not by facts, because facts don't matter anymore. They just simply refute it by refuting it. They just refuse to believe it, to hell with the facts. Point out that among his czars, quote, end quote, that's an odd name for a democratic republic to allow in its government, isn't it? Among his czars are people who affirm absolutely, categorically, without contradiction, affirm Marxist positions, such as Van Jones. Not just homosexuality, but pedophilia, such as Kevin Jennings, who is not only uh, committed homosexual, but is close, has close ties with the founder of NAMBLA, the, that's the North American Man-Boy Love Association, which teaches that uh, boys as young as infanthood should be legal sexual objects for grown men. That's just, I'm just naming two of over 30 of Obama's czars. ACORN, now fully disclosed as a front organization of many criminal activities, including the recorded testimony of their agents offering to become participants in the traffic of child prostitution was Obama's hit organization used to strong-arm their will in elections by intimidation, falsification of records, and other like activities too numerous to list here. But it doesn't matter. Truth is whatever we want it to be now. Now, <clears throat> Do you see why it's not possible to be apolitical and be a Christian? Do you see why you cannot just stand back and watch evil perpetrating itself and propagating itself and parading itself and not stand firmly in truth and seek justice where there is no justice and expose lies I told you in our last time together about the young 20-year-old and 25-year-old who have laid down their lives sacrificially to go in and expose ACORN uh, and reveal publicly for uh, to what it is. Now, let me tell you something. There is an overemphasis on end-time prophecy and scenarios of end-time prophecy that also contributes to our passivity and our inability to take a stand and believe for transformation and for the good. Some people would say to me, well, look, fighting, you're fighting prophecy. You're fighting an end-time scenario that's already predestined. Uh, darkness is going to get darker. They never seem to say to me that the light also is prophesied to get brighter. The path of the just is like a shining light that shines brighter and brighter until it reaches a perfect noonday, the Bible says. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Paul says, the night has passed away, the dawn has come. Don't be like those who sleep in the night and are drunk in the night. Stand up, wake up, put on the armor of God, and recognize that God has not appointed us to wrath but that we're to occupy till the wrath does come, and it is coming. 
This escapist view of the end times is the last item I want to look at briefly that causes us to give way to passive inactivity, lack of vision, lack of, of action. When I speak of Antichrist, i.e. communism, or whatever form you want, I mean, I'm, I'm fully aware that the spirit of Antichrist can be manifested through a Pentecostal evangelist or a Baptist pastor or a Catholic priest. I'm not saying Antichrist is just communism, but if you don't see, if you don't see Antichrist in communism, you're not looking. If anything is the spirit of Antichrist, the beast that devours and conquers and destroys and crushes and kills with impunity and shows no mercy, uh, then you're not thinking straight. That's why we spent time today exposing the fact that if you have allowed yourself to dichotomize the political and the spiritual to the point that you only think in religious terms about religious things and you only speak in, speak in, uh, in political terms about political things, you know what Pravda said? You know what Pravda, the, the, the propaganda machine of the, of the Soviet Union for years? Pravda asked this question about America in its uh, editorial last week. Pravda said, where are the Americans? Where is the Republican Party? I have that same question, by the way. Where is the Republican Party? Uh, because I'm not Republican. I'm not Democrat. I'm a Christian. But they're asking a valid question. They're saying, where is, where is the opposition party that will stand against the insanity being demonstrated by the United States government? You know why they're concerned? They are concerned because always America has been there to hold things together uh, in times of international crisis. Now we are the international crisis. And Pravda says, are they crazy? Or are they, are they uh, unaware that their government is being taken over by, quote, satanic insanity? Isn't it amazing? Pravda sees it and calls it what it is. While in America, we dare not use religious terms to describe political issues. Anyway, when I speak of Antichrist and that we are to engage it in the open forum of our society, not with weapons of the flesh, see Second Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. But with the spirit of truth spoken in love, I am not talking about the popularized antichrist of the movies or of Christian fiction. I do not deny the coming of an end-time world leader who will fulfill scriptural prophecies that have become identified with the term antichrist. I believe he will eventually appear on the scene, I do not intend here to attempt to spell out, as if I could, how that's all going to unfold. Everyone has their chart, and I find truth and value in almost everybody's charts. I do not believe that if you could hold the, that if you do hold the pre-trib rapture position, that that automatically makes you an escapist, or makes you subject to deception and passivity. But, having said that, I don't believe that about you if you hold that position. I do see the pre-tribulation rapture doctrine in its over-popularized -popular, form uh, to produce an escapist mentality that would let the world go to hell. We're going to fly out of here, uh, let the devil have it mentality. I think it's done more to hinder redemptive Christian endeavor with our culture than any single idea I can think of. Who cares about the environment? It's all going to burn. Who's, who cares about whether we've let Hollywood be taken over by evil? Uh, who cares about the arts? Who cares about literature or education? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. They'll misquote and take out of context and twist. Uh, who, who cares about uh, the Middle East? God has a plan for Israel. And the sooner it all blows up over there and turns into Armageddon, the better. It means we'll fly out of here sooner. Who cares about politics? Antichrist is going to get it all anyway. I guess maybe the most painful of all. Who cares about the lost? They've heard the message and refused it. So let's fly out of here and let them all go to hell. No, nobody says that 
not like that. I know that. I know, I, know, I know I'm stretching it. But the most vital question before us at this moment is, what shall we do with the time we have been given? How are we to occupy, as Jesus said? How are we to discipline or disciple the nations as he commanded? That is, by the way, what he commanded when he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. He commanded us to disciple the nations, not just hand out tracts and say we've done our job. Discipling nations, I can't reach the nations, but I can sure reach a few people here in front of me. I can sure reach a few people that want to listen to me uh, monthly. I do what I can. Fully aware that Jesus could come at any moment, fully aware that I may be an old, old man, or I may pass away and my children uh, may see him come. But regardless of what I believe about the end of the age and the wrap-up of history, I'm living in history. I'm not so much concerned about how it's going to wrap up. It's what my part is in the ongoing process. Could we pray together about this? Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus to search our hearts and see if there's anything in our hearts that is causing us to be passive in the face of evil and deceiving ourselves into believing that passivity is Christ-likeness. Teach us the difference, Lord. Help us discern so that we can act wisely in our generation. We ask in Jesus' name.